Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here with you. Thank you, Dr. Trawick, for the reminder of uh, my Golden Knights downfall. That is all right, because God is gracious. And so too, doom looms for Florida State. All right, roll tide. So it is always a humble honor to stand in this pulpit. Uh, it is extraordinary to be at a place where so many great names, names you would recognize, you would know, that books you've read, who've come through this place. We actually just heard one on Tuesday, a living legend, uh, Richard Ross. It's a, a blessing to, to serve with, with him here. Old Spice as the new incense. Perhaps the best line I have heard in chapel all year. But as I mentioned last time I was in the pulpit, it's not simply the great names that so amaze me. It is all the names we don't know. The thousands and thousands who have come through this place called by God. And they have been touched by those who spend time here. And they have gone to places whose names we do not know. But they are serving faithfully. And that always reminds me that what we do here is significant. It has eternal ramifications. And that makes every day significant and important. So it is indeed an honor this morning. St. Augustine, in book 10 of his Confessions, says that every human being desires to be happy. Now, what he's doing there is, is summarizing a great deal of philosophy before him and a great deal of philosophy since him. It can be summarized in, in Aristotle's statement. Every human action aims at some good and the good at which all good actions aim is happiness. So there's this recognition that happiness is the desire of our heart. And I think that is right. But Augustine goes on to distinguish all the varieties or ends of happiness by saying the authentic happy life is joy grounded in you, O God. And I think that is what we have set before us this morning. What is the choice of life you are going to pursue? Because though happiness may manifest itself and the means of attaining that happiness may manifest itself in a variety of ways, it really boils down to only two choices of life. Psalm 1 this morning reminds us, which is our text and our passage for the morning, if you want to turn there, Psalm 1 reminds us that there are only two. Verse six reminds us that there is the way of righteousness and there is the way of wickedness. Those are the only two choices of the pattern of life you can follow. But of those two, only one leads to the happy life. The happy life could be described as the title of the sermon, the lived reality of life with God. Now I think that captures well what the psalmist is telling us here in book one. But before we get too far, let's ask God's blessings on our time this morning. Lord, you have been our dwelling place 
throughout all generations, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever the earth and the world were made. From everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. What is man that you are mindful of him? We are but flecks of dust in your eternity. And yet you, O oh great God, have set your affections on us. You have reached down and chased your rebels. And you have drawn them to you. And not only have you taken us from death and given us life, but you have made us children, heirs and co-heirs with your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have been made your children. Lord, may we never forget that. And may we be mindful that therein and only therein lies joy and lies the happy life. So in the swirl of craziness around us that is our world today, may we be rooted and grounded in that which never changes. And we thank you that it is ours through Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray, amen. Now Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. Now blessed is a word that can also be translated happy. And so we're not off topic here when we talk about the happy life. As a matter of fact, this correlates with the Beatitudes in Matthew. There's a strong correlation between the blessedness here and the blessedness there. Both get at a kind of life that could be described as happy. But to understand it, we need, we need to see happiness a little differently than we take it today. Happiness today is understood as a psychological state or perhaps a, a circumstantial state. But if you think of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Circumstances we certainly would not describe as happy. And so when scripture talks of the happy life, it's talking about something deeper, not something that can be put in emoji. It's not a, a, a smiley face feeling. It is a deeper ontological state. It is a state of being, not a circumstantial state. But we also see that it's a declared state. Now when we say it is an ontological state or a state of being, that doesn't mean it's abstract because it's a lived reality. This is why the lived reality of life with God is the source of that happiness. Now it's a lived reality that is declared to be blessed. So if you take a look at this, this is God's declaration on this life. The happy life is the one God declares to be happy. And it serves with this eschatological end in mind. There is an eschatological hope that this life is lived with. So day in and day out, there is an experiencing of this happiness. So that the sum total of that life is described as blessed. And so we, we need perhaps another term. Blessed is good, but to communicate maybe flourishing would be a, a good concept to get in your mind. The flourishing life is what the Psalms opened with. And the psalmist tries to describe for us this rich, deep idea of the kind of life every human being was created for, 
but has fallen from. And here we see the blessed life. Blessed is the man. But what fascinates me here is he, he, he's got this great setup. Blessed is the man. All right, this is what everybody seeks. Let me have it. But where does he go? He tells you what it's not, not what it is. Okay, y'all don't seem very perplexed by that. That always puzzled me. So as I reflect on this passage, what, what is going on? Blessed is the man who does not. So the first thing out of the psalmist's mouth and on his pen is what we're not to do, not what we are to do. Now, why he does this, I, I don't know. I would love to be able to lay this grand uh, the theological principle out before you. But I, I'm really not sure. But I can tell you existentially why I think this is important, at least in my own life. Because the most immediate experiences that I have are the counsels of the wicked. It is this confrontation with the way of sinners. So when you wake up every morning, you're bombarded with the noise of the counsel of the wicked. There's an immediacy to it in our lives. It's much like walking on a sunny day, not like today, but walking on a sunny day and you encounter a, a shadow and you don't know what that shadow is, but you encounter it first, but you have to push on and move through that shadow to see the substance that is causing it. And that is what I think the psalmist is doing here. He is calling us to lift our eyes from the shadows, to push through to the substance, to not be distracted or caught up with shiny things, but push through to the beautiful things. Don't get caught up with the temporary, the immediate, the ephemeral. Push through to permanent things. Now, as we wade through the things we're not to consider, I want us to take a look at the choice of life. So if you are a note taker, one and two deals with the choice of life. Three and four deal with what I might call the character or the nature of that life. And five and six, the consequences of that life. We're gonna spend most time on this, this first part, on the choice of life, because that's the nitty gritty. And I also want us to keep in mind four things that'll help us move a little quicker because I am mindful of time. So the first thing we need to keep in mind is that all of these things we are to avoid are intentional choices. This is not something you just kind of stumble into. These are deliberate decisions that are made. This is the life I will pursue. So it's an intentional choice. When we look at the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, these are intentional choices. Now, closely related to that, these are all active. So not only are they intentional, they are active choices. Now, we see that in walking, but what about standing and sitting? As we see and as we move through, we're gonna see those are not passive, those are active. There is an intentional having and holding of this way of life. So it's intentional, it is active. But also notice the descriptions. The descriptions aren't just of actions, they are of the character. 
And it's a really important point to understand that actions follow natures. They follow from natures. Who you are is what you're going to do. So the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers are dealing with not just actions, but character. And then finally, I think it is best not to see these as working up to a climax. So these are small steps getting bigger. But rather, it is better, I think, to understand them as aspects of the one way of life. The way of wickedness can be understood as characterized in these three ways. Now, there is a deepening of these aspects. There is an embeddedness that continues on in them. But these are three aspects of the way of wickedness. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, describes them as thinking, behaving, and belonging. So these are the way and understanding the way of wickedness. Now, if we keep these things in mind, we can move through fairly quickly. So blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, the counsel of the wicked deals with that thinking. So it is a, a plan, a, a scheming of life. So again, this is an intentional decision to walk in the counsel according to the plan of the wicked. Now, we're not to do that. We are to avoid that. Now, why? Well, Isaiah tells us a little bit about the wicked in this fascinating passage in Isaiah 57, verse 20. Isaiah writes, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isn't that a vivid image? This idea of, of, of waters that are constantly agitated. There is no peace there. Now, what does this agitation do? It stirs up the muck and the mire. So there is no clarity from which to give counsel. And so if you walk in the counsel of the ungodly, it is indeed like the blind leading the blind. And it will not lead to the happy life. As a matter of fact, it is directly antithetical to the happy life. We are not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Nor are we to stand in the way of the sinners. Now here's that idea again. Standing, it, it seems like it is a passive idea. Guys, so when I walk through the student center, I see a lot of people standing around. It's a fairly passive standing around. But the the standing here is not a passive idea. Now, the term that is used here has wide semantic domain. It can mean a lot of things, but a lot of them revolve around a, a standing up before or a presenting. So it's often used of a sacrifice before the altar or maybe a soldier before his commander. There is this sense of standing as a presentation of so the idea here is that one who stands in the way of sinners is presenting themselves as a candidate for the lifestyle that is described as morally corrupt. Don't do it, <laughs> is the clear declaration of the psalmist. But oh, how subtle this is, because it presses in on us. It is the most immediate, and we hear it over and over and over, so it becomes almost like a default setting for us. 
but we must push through the shadows to the substance. We are not to stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Now surely sitting is passive. Okay? You all seem fairly passive right now. Okay? It's not a comment on the level of attention here. <laughs> it is a busy day. Now this idea of sitting in the seat of the scoffers is, is the idea of abiding. As a matter of fact, a, a loose but permissible translation might be something like abiding in the dwelling place of the scoffer. So there's a sense in which there is an active abiding in, a choosing not to be moved from the dwelling place of the scoffer. Now this is where it gets a little scary because the scoffer is a term that is used in scripture repeatedly of the fool. Such that the scoffer holds nothing in regard other than themselves. As a matter of fact, what they are scoffing at is those permanent things we've talked about. All those things that are held in high regard or cherished. Such things as the fear of the Lord. That becomes an object of scorn, an object of mockery. Now the pivotal part of this is that the scoffer or the mocker will not receive correction, will not receive rebuke, and therefore will never be wise. And that is a scary place to be. This is why the psalmist says the blessed man doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, has no part of those. Now, if we are interested in pursuing the flourishing life, this gives us an image of the kind of life we want to avoid. But again, I challenge you to think about your day-to-day -day life. Take a trip through social media. Does this characterize your experience? Listen to the news. It doesn't take long to understand why the psalmist begins with don't do this. If you want a blessed life, this isn't what it's about. But now in verse two, he comes to this, this statement, but rather than or although the blessed man doesn't live that way, it lives this way. This is the flourishing life. All right, what is the flourishing life like? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now this fascinates me. Because where does the flourishing life begin? The psalmist begins with our delights, our desires. The Christian intellectual tradition might say with well-ordered loves. He emphasizes what our delights are to be. He begins with this sense of the flourishing life, starts with loving the right kind of things in the right sorts of ways. That which we are to love, that which we are to delight in, have a deep abiding affection for is the law, the counsel, the instruction of the Lord. It is not to set ourselves in seeking the counsel of the wicked, rather it is seeking the counsel of the Lord our God, maker of heaven and earth. 
Therein is to be our delight. Now, why would we delight in it? Well, the psalmist also writes in Psalm 19, a set of scriptures I would encourage you to stay close to. We see it repeated over and over and over again, but here's a particularly intense section of the loveliness of God's word. Psalm 19, verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than all gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of transgressions. This is why we are to love the law of the Lord, the instruction, the counsel of the Lord. It holds up for us something that is beautiful and something that is perfect which draws out of us this strong affection because this is what we were created for. And our hearts are drawn to that. To quote Augustine again, our hearts are restless till we find our rest in you, O Lord. This is what we were created for. And it's held up for us and we long for it. But here's what else it does for us. In its beauty, in its splendor, it is revelatory, not simply of God's glory, but our sinfulness. And there's an element here that the mocker will never recognize. These words will never be on the scoffer's lips. Who can discern his errors? Keep back your servant from, from presumptuous sin. There is a recognition that I am in desperate need of correction. That is the way of wisdom. This is why people love the law of the Lord. It is a mirror to one's soul to hold up for us the holiness we all desire and pursue and our desperate wickedness that we fall short of. And it forces us to our knees to plead for God's mercy that is rich and deep and knows no end. And that only causes us to love him more deeply. Yes, we are to order our loves aright by beginning with the delight in the law of the Lord. Now, how do we show this delight? How is this delight evident in our lives? Well, we meditate on it day and night. This is part of our life. This is not just an occasional kind of thing. It's not a passive kind of thing. It's an intentional choice. We intentionally set ourselves in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. We roll it over in our minds. We think about it. 
As a matter of fact, there's a shift in the psalmist's use of the verbs. He moves from the perfect to the imperfect here, tipping us off that this is not a finished project. This is an ongoing process. This is a habit that is cultivated, and this habit leads to flourishing. Meditates on the word of God. Now, that is also not the only time we hear this in scripture. As a matter of fact, if you have spent any time in athletics at all, this other passage is constant. Be strong and courageous. And Joshua, Joshua 1.8. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn on over. Verse six is the first mention of it. Be strong and courageous. In verse seven, This is God's declaration to Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand that you may have good success, that you may act wisely wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all things that are written. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now here is a second element of the flourishing life. Where God's word is, God's presence is. When you meditate on God's word, you are communing with God in his word. Do you notice how Joshua has this communicated to him? Do, be strong and courageous because you're meditating on the word of God. Be strong and courageous because God is with you. There's a connectedness between the word of God and the presence of God. And this is the deepest satisfaction of our souls. So this is part of that well-ordering. We know what is most lovely, and by that we are able to order all other lovely things. We see and know rightly because our delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it we meditate day and night. Not happenstance, it seeps into the marrow of our souls. Now, this is the choice that is set before us, the choice of life. Which life will you pursue? But it goes on, though we cannot characterize the the flourishing life in an emoji, not a smiley face emoji or otherwise, but that doesn't mean the flourishing life can't be imaged forth because the psalmist does it for us. He is like a tree, the blessed man who roots himself in the word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The images could not be more palpable. Chaff, the husks of the kernels that have no substance, they are utterly worthless. Weightless, blown by the wind. 
It is not that the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffers don't root themselves in anything. They root themselves in worthless things. It is only he who roots himself in the word of God that has a boundless source of life. Now, we would dig into this figure of speech, this, this brilliant metaphor of the streams of water, the fruit in due season, uh, the leaf not withering. We see this image show up throughout scripture, Jeremiah particularly. Let me just call your attention to two things. The boundlessness of the source of life is what gives fruit in due season. Now, I love the use of the term in season. Our being rooted in the word of God doesn't mean that we will not follow through the regular seasons of life, that there will not be times of dryness, there will not be times of heat, there will not be times of abundance. We will walk through those, but at the right time and in the right place, we will produce the right fruit because the source of God is our great joy. Now the fruit one produces is from whatever field they are planted in. So whatever vocation God is calling you to, whatever place God is calling you to, if you are rooted in the word of God, you need not worry about God's provision. For where God's word is, God's presence is, and therein lies the flourishing life. The details of life are simply the outflow of the substance of one's life. Therefore, verse five, we deal with the consequences. So we're set before us this choice, the description of the character, but also the consequences. And they are indeed consequences. For verse five begins, therefore, the choices that one makes lead to the consequences of one's life. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Because one has rooted their, themselves, their life, in the, that which is insubstantial, they have no roots for when judgment comes. And they wither, they crumble. Further still, they are alienated from the congregation, from the assembly of the righteous. Those who have walked and lived in the presence of God, the wicked have no place. They are alienated. So just as God tells us to disassociate with the wicked, so God himself disassociates the wicked from himself is a powerful image. The end, therefore, is that they perish. They have no roots. They wither and they perish. But what, what else does this say? What about the way of the righteous? Now it gives one brief statement, doesn't it? But oh, what a statement it is. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now the term that is used here is a, is a, a term of intimacy. It is an experiential knowledge like the husband and wife relationship, there is an experiential knowledge that God has of the righteous. God knows you. 
Now that's extraordinary. God knows the way of the righteous. So not only are we embedded in the word of God, not only do we experience the presence of God in the word of God as we meditate on it, God has pledged himself to us. He is ours, we are his. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now the reason I think that's so significant and the reason I think those whose names we do not know, serving in places whose names we do not know, are so important to us is because it's very easy to feel ourselves like that. It's very easy to feel like our voice gets drowned out. There is a lot of noise out there. And when we try to stand for righteousness, when we try to proclaim the law of the Lord in all its beauty and splendor, it just seems to get lost. Our voice doesn't seem be strong enough. So the word this morning is to keep walking. Walk on. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's very easy when you are that person that nobody knows your name and you're serving in a place that nobody knows the name of. It's very easy to feel your own insignificance and to be overwhelmed by the immensity of evil. Who can stand against such reckless hate? Much of us feel like Theoden in Tolkien's story. Who am I? Well, it's easy to think that you have somehow been forgotten by God. I wanna close with just reading you a passage of scripture that speaks directly to that. It's in Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 26 Actually, let's back up to verse 25. To whom then will you compare me? This is God speaking to his people. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like them, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because of his strong power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob? Why do you speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My way is hidden from the Lord. Nobody knows my name. Nobody knows where I am. Has the Lord forgotten me? <laughs> my way is hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. When we call for justice, it seems as though our right is disregarded. But verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up like wings. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Has God forgotten your way? Walk on, dear pilgrim, walk on.
for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Thanks be to God. The blessed life indeed. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, your steadfast love truly extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is indeed like the mighty mountains. Lord, why do we worry? Why do we fret? Why do we feel insignificant when you, the God of the universe, has made us your own? Lord, your mercy is unfathomable. Your steadfast love knows no end. Your grace truly is amazing. May we rest in that and find our deepest joys in that and that alone. For we pray it in that marvelous name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.